With plenty of poetry, music and prose. And fun for this time of the year. Like a Christmas tree laden with offerings for you. It's December's issue of Look, Look Here. Here. I'm Stephen Buckley. And I'm Pippa Curtis. And with us in the studio to help us enjoy these last few days leading up to Christmas are Jane Fares. Hello. Phil Lee. Hello. Evelyn Brock. Hello. Barney Burnham. Hello. Catherine Neal. Hello. And fresh back from helping Santa at the North Pole, here's Barry with Alan and Kate. Hello. Did you know that Santa Claus has his own postcode? North Pole. Ho, ho, ho. Is that true? Yes, it is true. Here's another one. <laughs> on Christmas Day 1967, the residents of Southwold on the east coast awoke to find their beach covered no longer with pebbles, but with bright new Christmas tree baubles stretching for nearly a mile either way. The Christmas tree decorations had been part of a consignment aboard a container ship heading from Felixstowe to the Netherlands, which had lost some of its cargo in heavy weather a month earlier. Although the container itself had sunk to the bottom of the North Sea, the individual hollow baubles had very quickly resurfaced and were carried thence by the current to decorate the Suffolk coastline, just in time for Christmas. And is that true or is that false? <laughs> We'll be hearing more Christmas facts from Barry, some true, some false, later. But first, a poem by Helen Maria Williams, an English author living in Paris, who, in the 18th century, it seems, had received a very rich Christmas present. Evelyn. To Mrs K, on her sending me an English Christmas plum cake at Paris. What crowding thoughts around me wake, what marvels in a Christmas cake. Ah, say, what strange enchantment dwells enclosed within its odorous cells. Is there no small magician bound encrusted in its snowy round? For magic surely lurks in this. A cake that tells of vanished bliss. A cake that conjures up to view the early scenes when life was new. When memory knew no sorrows past and hope believed in joys that last. Mysterious cake whose folds contain life's calendar of bliss and pain that speaks of friends forever fled and wakes the tears I love to shed. Oft shall I breathe her cherished name from whose fair hand that offering came. For she recalls the artless smile of nymphs that deck my native isle of beauty that we love to trace, allied with tender, modest grace. Of those who, 
while abroad they roam, retain each charm that gladdens home, and whose dear friendships can impart a Christmas banquet for the heart. The Housewives' Own Book of Cookery of 1861 tells us how 19th century wassailers washed down their plum cake. Jane. During the Christmas week, bands of men calling themselves wassailers carry about, at night time, a large bowl made from wood of the apple tree and sing a song and chorus before the doors of their neighbours. Two pieces of stick are generally bent crossways over the bowl. These, as well as the bowl, are ornamented with laurel, mistletoe, various other evergreens, gay ribbons, etc. At the conclusion of the song, the bowl is sent into the house for inspection, in the hope that it may be returned well filled with alcohol, etc. Or accompanied by some trifling pecuniary donation. In Saki's story, Bertie's Christmas Eve, the wassail bowl had a lot to answer for. Phil. It was Christmas Eve, and the family circle of Luke Steffink Esquire was aglow with the amiability and random mirth which the occasion demanded. A long and lavish dinner had been partaken of, weights had been round and sung carols, the house party had regaled itself with more carolling on its own account. But in the midst of the general glow, there was one black unkindled cinder. Bertie Steffink had early in life adopted the profession of a ne'er-do-well. His father had been something of the kind before him. He'd gone to grow tea in Ceylon and fruit in British Columbia and to help sheep grow wool in Australia. At the age of 20, Bertie had just returned from some similar errand in Canada, from which it may be gathered that the trial he gave to these various experiments was of a summary nature. Luke Steffink, who fulfilled the troubled role of guardian and deputy parent to Bertie, deplored the persistent manifestation of the homing instinct on his nephew's part, and his solemn thanks earlier in the day for the blessing of reporting a united family had no reference to Bertie's return. Arrangements had promptly been made for packing the youth off to a distant corner of Rhodesia, whence return would be a difficult matter. The journey to this uninviting destination was imminent, a fact a more careful and willing traveller would have already begun to think about his packing. Hence Bertie was in no mood to share in the festive spirit which displayed itself around him, and resentment smouldered within him at the eager, self-absorbed discussion of social plans for the coming months, which he heard on all sides. Eleven o'clock had struck some half-hour ago, and the elder Steffinks began to throw out suggestions leading up to that process, which they called retiring for the night. "'Come, Teddy, it's time you were in your little bed, you know,' said Luke Steffink to his thirteen-year-old son. "'That's where we all ought to be,' said Mrs Steffink. There wouldn't be room, said Bertie. This remark was considered to border on the scandalous. Everybody ate raisins and almonds with the nervous industry of sheep feeding during threatening weather. In Russia, said Horace Bordenby, who was staying in the house as a Christmas guest, I've read that the peasants believe that if you go into a cow house or stable at midnight on Christmas Eve, you will hear the animals talk. 
They're supposed to have the gift of speech at that one moment of the year. Oh, do let's all go down to the cowhouse and listen to what they've got to say, exclaimed Beryl, to whom anything was thrilling and amusing if you did it in a troop. Mrs. Steffink made a laughing protest, but gave a virtual consent by saying, we must all wrap up then. The ideas seemed a scatterbrained one to her, and almost heathenish, but it afforded an opportunity for throwing the young people together, and as such she welcomed it. Mr. Horace Bordenby was a young man with quite substantial prospects, and he had danced with Beryl at a local subscription ball a sufficient number of times to warrant the authorised inquiry on the part of the neighbours as to whether there was anything in it. Though Mrs. Steffink would not have put it in so many words, she shared the idea of the Russian peasantry that on this night the beast might speak. The cowhouse stood at the junction of the garden with a small paddock, an isolated survival in a suburban neighbourhood of what had once been a small farm. Luke Steffink was completely proud of his cowhouse and his two cows. He felt that they gave him a stamp of solidity. A December midnight was hardly the moment he would have chosen for showing his farm building to visitors, but since it was a fine night and the young people were anxious for an excuse for a mild frolic, Luke consented to chaperone the expedition. The servants had long since gone to bed, so the house was left in charge of Bertie, who scornfully declined to stir out on the pretext of listening to bovine conversation. "'We must go quietly,' said Luke, as he headed the procession of giggling young folk, brought up in the rear by the shawled and hooded figure of Mrs Steffink. "'I've always laid stress on keeping this a quiet and orderly neighbourhood.' It was a few minutes to midnight when the party reached the cowhouse and made its way by the light of Luke's stable lantern. For a moment, everyone stood in silence, almost with a feeling of being in church. Daisy, the one lying down, is by a short-horned bull out of a Guernsey cow, announced Luke in a hushed voice, which was in keeping with the foregoing impression. Is she? said Bordenby, rather as if he had expected her to be by Rembrandt. Myrtle is... Myrtle's family history was cut short by a little scream from the women of the party. The cowhouse door had closed noiselessly behind them and the key had turned gratingly in the lock. Then they heard Bertie's voice, pleasantly wishing them a good night and his footsteps retreating along the garden path. Luke Steffink strode to the window. It was a small square opening of the old-fashioned sort with iron bars let into the stonework. "'Unlock the door this instant!' he shouted with as much air of menacing authority as a hen might assume when screaming through the bars of a coop at a marauding hawk. In reply to his summons, the hall door closed with a defiant bang. Towards one o'clock, the sound of rather boisterous and undisciplined carol singing approached rapidly and came to a sudden anchorage, apparently just outside the garden gate. A motorload of youthful bloods in a high state of conviviality had made a temporary halt for repairs. The stoppage, however, did not extend to the vocal efforts of the party, and the watchers in the cowshed were treated to a highly unauthorised rendering of Good King Wenceslas, in which the adjective good appeared to be very carelessly applied. The noise had the effect of bringing Bertie out into the garden, but he utterly ignored the pale, angry faces peering out of the cowhouse window and concentrated his attention on the revellers outside the gate. Wassail, you chaps, he shouted. Wassail, old sport, they shouted back. We jolly well drink your health, only we've nothing to drink it in. 
Come and wassail inside, said Bertie hospitably. I'm all alone and there's heaps of drink. The hall door closed with a bang on Bertie's guests and the sounds of merriment became faint and muffled to the weary watchers at the other end of the garden. Presently, two ominous pops in quick succession made themselves distinctly heard. They've got at the champagne, exclaimed Mrs Steffink. Perhaps it's only the sparkling Moselle, said Luke hopefully. Three or four more pops were heard. The champagne and the sparkling Moselle, said Mrs Steffink. Some forty minutes later, the hall door opened and disgorged a crowd that had thrown off any restraint of shyness that might have influenced its earlier actions. Its vocal efforts in the direction of carol singing were now supplemented by instrumental music. A Christmas tree that had been prepared for the children of the gardener and other household retainers had yielded a rich spoil of tin trumpets, rattles and drums. The life story of King Wenceslas had been dropped. The revellers found their car and what was more remarkable managed to drive off in it with a parting fanfare of tin trumpets. The lively beat of a drum disclosed the fact that the master of the rebels remained on the scene. Bertie! came in an angry, imploring chorus of shouts and screams from the cowhouse window. Hello, cried the owner of the name, turning his rather errant steps in the direction of the summons. Are you people still there? Must have heard everything cow's got to say by this time. If you haven't, no use waiting. After all, it's a Russian legend, and Russian Christmas Eve's not due for another fortnight. Better come out. After one or two ineffectual attempts, he managed to pitch the key of the cowhouse door in through the window. Then, lifting his voice to the strains of I'm afraid to go home in the dark, with a lusty drum accompaniment, he led the way back to the house. The hurried procession of the release that followed in his steps came in for a good deal of the adverse comment that his exuberant display had evoked. It was the happiest Christmas Eve he had ever spent. This is Christmas Eve by Liz Berry from her 2014 collection of poetry, Black Country. Tonight, the black country is tinselled by sleet falling on the little towns lit up in the darkness like constellations. The pigeon, the collier, and upon the shooting stars of boy racers who comet through the streets in white novas. It's blowing in drifts from the pit banks over the brown ribbon of the cut, over Beacon Hill, through the lap-loved chimneys of the factories. Sleet is tumbling into the lap of the plaster-cast Mary by the manger at St Jude's. Her face gorgeous and naive as the last Bilston Carnival Queen. In the low-rise flats opposite the cemetery, Mrs Shoal is turning on her fibre-optic tree and unfolding her ticket for the rollover lottery. Though we ain't never had a bitter look in our lives. And upstairs in the box rooms of a thousand semis, hearts are stuttering and minds unravelling like unfinished knitting. And the sleet fattens and softens to snow, blanking the crowded rows of terraces and their tiny hankies of garden, white now, surrendering their bird feeders and sandpits, 
the shed Mick built last autumn when the factory clammed up. And the work's gone again. And the old boys are up at dawn to clock on nowhere except walk their dogs and sigh at the cars streaming to call centres and supermarkets. Cos there ain't nothing in it that's mon's work, really, Bab, there I. But it's coming down now, really coming. Over the stands at Molyneux, over Billy Wright kicking his dreams into the ring road. And in the dark, behind the mechanics, the Ophini boy props his BMX against the lockups and unzips to piss a flower on the snow. Well, give me strength, Lord, to turn the other cheek, for we'm the only ones half decent round here. And the tower blocks are advent calendars, every curtain pulled to reveal a snow-blurred face. And it's Christmas soon, abide it or not, for now the pubs are illuminated pink and gold. The Crooked House, Marpardos, The Stumbling Man. And snow is filling women's hair like blossom. And someone is drunk already and throwing a punch. And someone is jamming a key in a changed lock, shouting, For Christ's sake, Moira, you'll freeze me to death! And a hundred new bikes are being wrapped in sheets and small pyjamas warmed on fire guards. And children are saying, one more minute, just one, ma'am. And the old girls are watching someone die on a soap and feeling every snow they've ever seen set in their bones. It's snowing on us all. And I think of you, Eloise, down there in your terrace, feeding your baby or touching his hand to the snow. And although we can't ever go back or be what we were, I can tell you honestly, I'd give up everything I've worked for or thought I wanted in this life to be with you tonight. The sky exploded. Night turned inside out and suddenly was all ablaze across the blue-black sky like diamonds. It was day, like rainbows sparkling in salt spray or waterfalls of light. Not any sort of night that anyone had ever seen before or since. The shepherds on the hill screwed up their eyes against it, so bright it made them wince. They heard the singing, felt the wind of wild wings beating, white and gleaming thunder, high in God's heaven. All this, all this fanfare fuss, this mad, amazing energy on this high hilltop, this was not the main event. That happened quietly behind the pub, in a shed they kept the donkey in. There God was born, not in a palace to be claimed by kings, not in a rich man's house awash with things, not even underneath the angel's shining wings, but in a shed with stuff for us, 
for ordinary us. Catherine read The Sky Exploded by Jan Dean. The Norwegian government has introduced a tax break in the month of November. This means that all earnings in the month are taxed at half the regular amount. As most employers pay employees' salaries around about the middle of the following month, it means the extra money comes in right before Christmas. That way, employees make the most of their work hours and even put in some overtime for extra money. The idea behind the tax break is to give Norwegians a merrier Christmas. Now, do you think that one is true or false? We all know the Christmas story. And here it is from the innkeeper's point of view, as described in a poem by David Orme. Catherine. I saw a baby in a manger. I saw a baby in a manger with two parents, Mary and Joseph. I saw a baby in a manger with two parents, Mary and Joseph, and three wise kings, who came on four camels. There was one to carry the presents. I saw a baby in a manger with two parents, Mary and Joseph, and three wise kings with their four camels, and five shepherds, all dusty from the hills. Oh yes, and they had six sheep with them. They couldn't leave them behind because of the wolves. I saw a baby in a manger with two parents, Mary and Joseph, and three wise kings with their four camels, and five shepherds with their six sheep that couldn't be left behind, and seven donkeys and eight cows. Then there were the angels. They kept flying around singing, and it was hard to count then, but there must have been at least nine. Nine angels, eight cows, seven donkeys, six sheep, five shepherds, four camels, three wise kings, two parents, a baby, and one very special star. And from the donkey's point of view. No room in the inn, of course, and not that much in the stable. What with the shepherds, Magi, Mary, Joseph, the heavenly host, not to mention the baby using our manger as a cot. You couldn't have squeezed another cherub in for love or money. Still, in spite of the overcrowding, I did my best to make them feel wanted. I could see the baby and I would be going places together. In 1927, T.S. Eliot was asked by his employer, Geoffrey Faber, one of the partners in Faber and Guire, to write one poem each year for a series of illustrated pamphlets to be sent to the firm's clients and business acquaintances as Christmas greetings. One of these was Journey of the Magi, released in the August of that year. It begins with five lines adapted from a passage in the Nativity Sermon preached by Lancelot Andrews, the Bishop of Winchester, before King James I on Christmas Day 1622, and is generally considered to be a deeply personal poem. Indeed, the magus in the poem shares Eliot's view that spiritual transformation is not a comfort but an ongoing process, an arduous journey seemingly without end. The Magus's view on the birth of Jesus and the shift from the old ways to Christianity is complex and ambivalent. 
Journey of the Magi is read for us here by Michael Dyer. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camel's galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn, we came to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued, and arriving at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place it was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. A family in New South Wales set off early on the 23rd of December 2009 to spend Christmas with relatives 300 miles to the north Unfortunately, the wife's bachelor brother hadn't got the memo that his sister and her children would be away for the holiday. He decided to surprise them all at home on Christmas Eve, bearing gifts for all. Dressed in full Santa suit and a beard, and with a sackful of goodies for his sister and her children, late in the evening of December the 24th, he duly made his surreptitious entrance down a ventilation shaft. Well, some way down he got stuck. His cries for help went unheard for three days until a passing sheep farmer happened by and he called the fire brigade. Fortunately, among the toys and goodies in his sack was a box of chocolates intended for his sister and some chewy sweets for the kids. These kept him alive during his Christmas holiday. True or false? 
One can imagine that that's exactly the sort of scrape that Richmond Crompton's famous character, young ne'er-do-well William Brown, would get into. But for William and his chums in A Present from William, Christmas briefly becomes more a time for reflection. The part about Christmas I don't like, said Douglas, is having so many relations round. Aunts are the worst, said William with a sigh. Always making such a fuss about nothing at all, just because you make a quiet noise on a trumpet or something like that. We had one last year that said my mouth organ went right through her head. Stands to reason it couldn't have done. I suppose she got a solid head, same as everyone else. Then a pea out of my catapult hit her once by mistake and she said it had given her a nervous breakdown. She was jolly awful. Thank goodness we aren't having any this year. They asked the same aunt again and she said that if I was going to be at home she'd rather not come, thank you. And I'd jolly well feel the same way about her. It's going to be a rotten Christmas for me, said Henry. I've not got any money to buy people Christmas presents with. Nor have I, said Ginger. Nor have I, said Douglas. I've not had any money for so long, said Ginger pathetically, that I've almost forgotten what it feels like to have money. They say it's the thought that matters, not the actual present, said Henry. But I've noticed that they're jolly sniffy when you give them the thought and not the actual present. And they say that they'd rather you took a little trouble making them things than just buying them. And when you do, they start making an awful fuss. I made a jolly nice plant pot for a Christmas present once out of an old hat of Ethel's. Only it turned out it wasn't an old hat and everyone was mad with me. Every time I've ever tried to make anything for anyone, it's only made them mad with me. So I'm jolly well not going to do it anymore. Funny how we never seem to have any money at Christmas. And no one ever gives us any for presents. Only ties and books and pencil boxes and things like that. I'd like to be able to give my mother something nice, said Ginger wistfully. The others agreed. They all would have liked to be able to give their mothers something nice. I bet mine would give me a bit of money for it, if I asked her, said Douglas. But it doesn't seem right getting the money from the person you want to buy the present for. The others agreed. It certainly didn't seem right. Next year, I'm jolly well going to start saving up for presents weeks and weeks before Christmas. The others agreed. They agreed every year. It's Guy Fawkes Day that throws it all wrong, said William bitterly. You use up all the money you've got and all the money you're going to have for weeks on fireworks... Then you've got to pay for all the windows and things that get broke by the fireworks. And by the time Christmas comes, you've no money at all. I think there ought to be a law putting Guy Fawkes Day in the middle of summer. Then it'd give you time to get over it and have a bit of money by Christmas. They agreed. They agreed every year. That was part of A Present from William, a Christmas story from the well-known author Richmond Crompton. Crompton is less well-known for her ghost stories. But being as it's Christmas, if ghost stories are your thing, you might like to investigate Crompton's collection Mist and Other Ghost Stories, which has been fairly recently reprinted by Sundial Press. 
In our audio playhouse this month, we too have a Christmas ghost story for you, specially written for us by John Stanbury, and it also makes reference to Charles Dickens' famous novella. We present part one of AJ. Yes, what name is it, sir? Uh, uh, John Smith. Ah, let me see. Are you in East Haven for the conference, sir? Care Support International. Yeah, of course. Ah, here we are. Uh, Oh, we've put you in the Bradbury suite, um, Sir John, if that'll be all right. I haven't always been in this business. I trained as an actor, much to my father's disgust. He was big on business. Owned three quite big companies importing and exporting white goods around the world. He had two heart attacks, but he still carried on. Expected me to follow in his footsteps. I didn't fancy a heart attack, so I ran away. To the Thameshurst School of Drama in London. And I had a pretty good time. Lots of parties. Smoked a lot. Drank a lot. Some work, too. We did some interesting stuff on that course. Harold Pinter, Jean Ennui, two Shakespeare's. My autolycus was something to be remembered, they all said, although I'm not completely sure it was meant as a compliment. When we finished the course, we were told, if you want to get a good job, get yourself a good agent. I didn't know any good agents, so I ended up on the books of one Sidney Shlomo, who was the ex-husband of someone in my aunt's knitting group, but had once been a casting director for Anglia TV and knew people, apparently. You'll have to change your name, of course, John Boy. Uh, That was our first meeting. I wasn't surprised. My mates at Thameshurst often joked that John Smith lacked something of the cachet of Herbert Beerbohm Tree or Laurence Olivier. So in view of my memorable performance in The Winter's Tale, they gave me the nickname Autolycus just to rub it in. What would you suggest, Mr Shlomo? He skimmed through my rather thin CV, noting what I'd done. How about Autolycus, John Boy? Autolycus, John Boy? We did A Midsummer Night's Dream as well, you know. I played Bottom. How about that? No, thanks. I'll stick with Smith if it's all the same to you. Maybe I should have taken his advice. Nobody seemed terribly interested in booking an actor with a name as uncharismatic as John Smith. Whether it was that or just Sidney Shlomo working in slow motion, I don't know, but nothing happened until about 18 months later, when my shift manager at the care home in Dimfield, where I worked, said I'd had a call from Sidney somebody or other at Starstruck Agency, and could I call him back? What are you doing at Christmas, John Boy? I hated it when he called me that. As it happened, I had been offered some comparatively lucrative night shifts over the Christmas holiday. But if he was going to offer me a leading part in a West End musical, I didn't want to be too negative. Added to that, we had just lost one of our long-term residents to Alzheimer's, a lovely old lady we called Maisie. So I was more than ready for an, an entertaining diversion. Oh, I'm completely free, Mr Shlomo. There's a new play just opened near King's Lynn, a version of A Christmas Carol. One of the cast has just left, and they need someone pronto. Only a small part, but it might suit you. What do you think? 
Can you do it? Well, um... Good. You start tomorrow. And that was my introduction to my very first real acting job. The East Haven in the Wash, 1973, Christmas End of the Pier Show. Now, an end of the pier show at Christmas, you'd perhaps expect to be a pantomime, wouldn't you? But actually, the production, Christmas Yet to Come, was a proper play, based on Charles Dickens' story of Ebenezer Scrooge, concentrating on Scrooge's life when he was a young man. The actor they'd booked to play the young Jacob Marley had quit at short notice, and though they said it wasn't a big part, they couldn't write Marley out of the story completely, and so with next to no rehearsal, it was down to me, a complete novice, to save the show. I arrived at the very bleak and rain-swept East Haven station on my 23rd birthday in December 1973 and made my way to my digs, which Sydney had sorted out for me. The rather optimistically named Harbour View Hotel it was, although the harbour was nowhere in sight, just a dingy back street. I was to occupy the same room that my predecessor in the show had had. The owners were jolly glad I'd taken it over from him. I'm not sure they even changed the sheets. After I dropped my stuff off at the Harbour View, I picked up some rather grey-looking fish and chips for lunch and walked down to the theatre to see if I could find Val, the director. As I neared the end of the pier where the theatre was, I spotted an elderly bearded man by the railing. Well, hanging on to it, he was, as if to keep himself from falling over. Though the rain had let up some while ago, he was soaking wet and he must have brushed up against some mildewed part of the pier somehow and got green stains all over his dark jacket. He looked pretty destitute and quite ill. Are you all right, mate? What? I said, are you okay? Are you ill? He smelled strongly of the sea, but even more strongly of gin, and seemed more drunk than ill. What's the matter? Leave, leave me alone. Let's get you out of the wind. You're soaking. Have you been standing out here long? I guided and half-carried him over to the sheltered bench in the lee of the stage door. Get off of me. What do you want? He was shivering and pulling his grubby jacket tighter around him. Are you hungry? What's it to you? I still had some chips left and a little bit of fish, so I put them in his lap. Here, have this. He didn't say anything, but polished off the remains of my lunch with undisguised enthusiasm. Do you live hereabouts? You look cold. Why don't you come inside the theatre with me and get warm? No, I'm, I'm all right. Sir, oh. come back. He'd scurried further up the pier, round behind the theatre building. I chased after him, but he disappeared. Nothing there but the rusty railing and the grey sea below. be until six at the earliest, most of them. Except Val, she wants to go through it with you on the stage at about four. You're in dress room six at the end of the corridor by the fire exit. Uh, did they leave a script for me? There wasn't time to send it. Dunno. Well, they said it would be here at the stage door. Hold on, then. No. No. Ah, is this it? Says John Smith on it. 
Oh, yes, that'll be it. Thanks. Right. Number six. I started moving into my very first professional dressing room. I settled down with the script. I had just a couple of hours in which to learn my lines. For a small part, I was dismayed at the amount I had to get through. There was one speech that took up two-thirds of a page and another about the same length a couple of pages later, plus several bits in other scenes. I was never going to learn all of that reliably in the time that I had. Val, the director, didn't turn up until a quarter to seven, just 45 minutes before curtain up. She took me up onto the stage to block it through quickly with the rest of the cast. To say I was nervous is an understatement. But I tried hard not to show it. I wasn't due to be on until the second act, so at least I had the first act and the interval to prepare myself. Just as the first act began, I was in my dressing room trying to memorize my lines and there was a knock at the door. Come in. It was the old man from the pier. He made towards the chair. I got up. There's no need to fuss, my boy. I'm perfectly fine. How about you, though? He was younger than I thought. Probably not much more than 60. There was a bit of damp seaweed clinging to his trousers and he still smelt of the sea. I started saying something about the part I'd been conned into playing, but I could tell he really wasn't listening, glancing instead around the dressing room. Nervous? Of course you are. You should be. It's your first job. Oh, and you want to keep away from this stuff. He placed a half-empty bottle carefully on the table. Gin, the label said, though it wasn't a make I had seen before. Bombay something. Are you secure on your words? Any, uh... Anything I can help you with? Uh, sorry? Well, in return for this afternoon, do you need help with the lines? I can read in for you. Oh, right. Um, well, yes, if you... Uh, have you done this before? Uh, pause it over, lad. Shall we go from the top of page 40, scene 6, your entrance? Um, from what's this I hear? If you're sure. Go on. Go on. Ebenezer, what's this I hear about you and that flatly girl from Islington Barracks? Jacob Marley, never you mind about my affairs. You look to your business and I'll look to mine. If you ask me, Eb, it's not business with Belle that you're interested in. There's always a place for business, Jacob, in any relation. I noticed that my new acquaintance was not reading from the script pages, but seemed to be reciting it from memory. You, um, know this play? Well, of course, my boy. They told me it was new. Are you an actor? Oh, oh my God, are, are you in it? Why didn't you say before? Who do you play? I, I don't even know your name. Oh, just call me A-Day. Yes, acting can be a fine profession if you're suited to it and have the dedication to keep at it even when... When... Are you dedicated? Well, I suppose so. It's not always easy. Not a straight road to Broadway, you know. Well, no, of course not. N nobody expects... You need a real passion for it, you know what I mean? Well, uh, yes. Hardships can be lonely. 
disheartening if the parts don't come. Shows where you can't even get an audition. Auditions where you never get called back. And then, when you do get something, months away from home. Scarce food, unkind people. You paint a black picture. Are you kind? Well, I, I try to be. Well, you were kind to me this afternoon. Well, you were obviously in trouble. Do you often help people like that? Sometimes. Yeah. People usually avoid drunks. What do you do when you're not acting? Well, I work. What sort of work? F filling shelves at the supermarket? Uh, I, I, I work in a care home. Well, there you are. I said you were kind. I noticed he had a small tattoo on his wrist, resembling the upturned palm of a hand, sort of cupped. It had some initials under it. C.S.I. It's a job. Well, it's more than a job. I, I do enjoy well, it. Well, of course you do. I can tell. Although it can be difficult. Sometimes sad. And desperately underfunded. The place I work in, used to work in, appallingly understaffed. If it weren't for the dedication of everyone, the, the place wouldn't function at all. But now you're focusing on a new career. Hmm. Yeah. Onward and upward, eh? Well, if this is your true passion, we'd better get on with it, young Jacob Marley. That first line of yours, remember, Marley's one of Scrooge's best mates, hmm? You have a warm relationship, very familiar, mischievous even. Don't play too severe. Put a twinkle in your eye. Try it again. Um, Ebenezer, what's this I hear about you and that Flatley girl from Islington Barracks? Better. Scrooge says, Marley, never you mind about my affairs. Look to your business, and I'll look to mine. If you ask me, Eb, it's not business with Belle that you're interested in. Good. Keep that twinkle. There's always a place for business. We went through the scene, line by line, he offering little insights into my character. Listen to yourself for a moment. And I tried to work out who this guy was. Was he the writer, maybe? It's yet to come. Well, if it was such a new work, how else could he be so familiar with it? The time has come for you to listen to what all your... We rehearsed all of my scenes in great depth. I don't know how long we spent in that room, honing the dialogue, inventing bits of business. It felt like we were at it for hours, but it could only have been about 50 minutes, the length of the first act. Ladies and gentlemen... This is your five-minute call for Act Two. Well, this is it, lad. Your big moment. AJ, I don't know how oh, to thank you. Don't mention it, my boy. Mr. Jones on stage, please. And just remember everything I told you. And I mean everything. Passion is the key. Dedication. Do what you believe in. We'll do, AJ. Come on, let's go. AJ, I, I was going to ask, how did you know it was my first job? AJ? I thought he was right behind me, but just like on the pier that afternoon, he'd vanished. I supposed that he'd gone back into the dressing room, and I didn't have time to find out or even think about it. I carried on down the corridor to the stage and stood in the wings, waiting for my cue. We'll hear part two of AJ a little later. In the meantime, here's a little puzzle from John.
The last time we did something like this, I played you some Christmas carols whose tunes were played in reverse, which renders the melody, and thus the carol, largely unrecognisable until you understand what's going on. This is a similar idea. It's also called a retrograde, but in this form of retrograde, the notes aren't played backwards like last time, but upside down. They're in the right order, but the tune is standing on its head, so that the higher a note is in the original version, the lower it comes out in the retrograde version. One of the most well-known examples of this little trick is the 18th of Rachmaninoff's variations on a the theme of Paganini, where the famous Paganini theme... is inverted to form the maybe even more famous variation. That was Arthur Rubinstein with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in a rather scratchy recording from the 1950s. Turning a tune on its head like this may transform the melody, but what doesn't change is its rhythm. That was the first line of a well-known carol flipped upside down. Da 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 da, da 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 da. The tune you heard there is not helpful, but the rhythm of the line is still right. Da 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 da, da 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 da. I'm quite sure there are loads of tunes out there amongst the millions of commercial songs available which all start with that rhythm, so the possibilities are seemingly endless. But on the other hand, we know it's a carol, and that limits the number of choices considerably. Could it be once in Royal? Davis City. No, that's not right. How about We Three Kings of Orient are? Well, I don't normally sing it like that, do you? No, of course not. There's only one I can think of with that rhythm. Silent night, holy night. That's not the right tune, but the rhythm's spot on. And if you flip it back to the right way up, the notes suddenly make sense. So here's one for you to work out. Remember, the rhythm is your quickest route to the answer, together with the fact that the tune of this one is also that of a well-known Christmas carol. Any ideas? It's surprisingly difficult, isn't it? And it doesn't help that because of the way major and minor chords work, when you flip one in this way, it changes from one to the other. In Rachmaninoff's case, from A minor to D flat major. 
So this carol, which in its inverted form sounds rather sad, actually started life in its much happier major key. And in case you didn't pick up the rhythm of those first few notes, here they are again. Da 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 da. Okay, enough guessing. Here it is at last, unflipped and restored to its original glory. René Magritte Cyrillist painting Nativity with a Pineapple was sold for 10 shillings and then ceremoniously burned on a bonfire in La Place des Vosges in Paris by an anti-Cyrillist group led by Christopher Caldwell. Had he kept the painting, it would probably have been worth today between 60 to 80 million dollars. That's 50 to 65 million pounds. True or false? 18 years after author Laurie Lee died, his daughter discovered eight unpublished essays in the British Library. Here's part of one of them. Village Christmas. Barney. Christmas dressing was formal. For the boys, velvet suits, starch collars and hair shining with Vaseline. For the girls, best dresses and new pinafores. We tumbled downstairs three steps at a time into the kitchen's glow. The fire was ablaze and Mother had already started the breakfast, frying great pans of eggs and bacon. We sat down to the finest breakfast of the year, which included real cream and porridge. Hark, children, cried Mother, suddenly cocking her head. Isn't that pretty? Now fancy that. With our mouths full of bacon, we ran out into the yard and stood listening in the snow. Then we heard it, the pealing of Painswick bells, the traditional and joyous sound, coming faint but clear over the distant hills like icicles stirred by the wind, ringing Christmas in the valley. Our own village bell started up soon after, cool as a snowdrop, calling us all to church. There were no dissenters this morning. Everyone turned out from the gentry in their carriages to the farmers and their bonneted wives in carts. For us choir boys, there were new robes, cold as sheets of tin, which we donned hurriedly in the shivering vestry. Then, with pink cheeks glowing, faces modestly composed, sweets hidden beneath our tongues, we followed the snow-haired vicar to our place in the stalls to a resounding peal on the organ. Unto us a child is born, unto us a prince is given. We sang it full-throated, knowing it to be true. After a brief sermon, the vicar released us with his blessing. 
and the rest of the day was ours. Back home, we found that Grandpa had come, and a couple of whiskered uncles, all wearing brown polished gaiters. Eddies of tempting smells filled the crowded kitchen. Mince pies, hot pastry, the tang of fresh chopped parsley, the tingling aroma of the goose, which was too big for the oven and hung turning on a spit before the roaring fire, its fat dripping into a small brass dish. Nothing could be hurried. Christmas dinner was sacred, and the waiting was part of its price. When all was ready at last, the table had never looked more beautiful. The decorated plates, the paper napkins, which appeared only once a year, the dishes steaming with vegetables, and the little willow pattern saucers full of dates and nuts and figs. We sat in our places, confidently clutching our knives and forks, knowing this was one occasion when we could all eat our fill, and when there would even be second helpings. Plates clattered up and down the table, returning laden with helpings of crackling goose. All over the village it would be like this. Families gathered for their feast of the year. Proud and flustered mothers giving their star performances. The old and toothless blissfully chewing. The young gorging themselves, grinning fatly at each other. Babies in high chairs sucking marrow bones. Finally, came the climax of the meal, the pudding. Steaming royally on its china dish, a great bowl of glory, as black as night, with a bunch of holly twinkling on top. Grandpa fished from his pocket a tiny medicine bottle of brandy and poured it over the pudding and set it alight. Whiskers of pale flame began to purr and flicker around it, dancing over the surface like tremors of lightning. We all cheered. Mother blushed. I hope it boiled long enough, she murmured. Then she ladled it out with a fiery spoon, a great dollop for every plate. It was the last of the orgy, a surfeit of richness. We searched each morsel for the lucky sixpence, and each child found one to our astonished delight. The uncles had seen to that. Christmas dinner over, the elders slumped in their chairs, sipping ginger wine, their voices furry and sentimental. So we left them to doze among the orange peel and walnuts while we ran out into the snow-filled lanes. At this hour in the village, mid-afternoon Christmas, only the children seemed to be left alive, the boys trying out their pot guns, pelting each other with snowballs or whizzing up and down on the frozen pond, Girls more sedate, showing off their bright new ribbons, lace-up boots and rabbit fur muffs. Night came early, with the valley and its woods closing in darkly around the house. Now was the time to light the tree, its branches loaded with tinsel, with silver cut-out moons and stars, and with the clip-on candles, each a living tongue of flame, building up a pyramid of dancing light. Mother put out the oil lamps one by one, and we stood hushed and entranced together, adoring the tree in its chaste white glare, coated all over in frosty fire. The precious day was dying. 
We boys struggled to keep awake. Our eyes shadowed like burnt-out candles. How could we leave the beautiful tree? We piled our toys at the foot of our beds and Mother tucked us up, her shadow large on the ceiling, thrown by the beams of a single candle. As long as she was there, it was still Christmas. As long as she held the light in our room, the day somehow could not end. We clung desperately to this last moment. Then Mother left us, and the angle of the candlelight grew narrower on the wall and finally went out, closing that day forever. Mistletoe, as much a part of the tradition of Christmas today as it was in Laurie Lee's youth, is actually a parasite growing high up in trees where it provides an important habitat for woodland wildlife. It usually grows from seeds stuck to or even excreted from the birds eating its fruit. But you can grow it yourself in a rather more scientific way. Catherine will tell us how. Choose your host tree. Half the mistletoe grown in England grows on apple trees, undoubtedly the best. But poplar, lime and hawthorn can work reasonably well. Remember that mistletoe is a parasite and will reduce fruit yield on an apple tree. Obtain some berries. It's best to harvest them fresh in February. Mistletoe berries cut at Christmas are not ideal. If the berries have been stored, rehydrate them for a few hours in water. Fresh or stored, the seed needs to be squeezed out of the berry along with a quantity of the sticky viskin. Collect several sticky seeds on your fingers. Stick the seeds onto a young branch about an inch or two in diameter. Avoid older branches and the trunk. Label the branch. Plant as many seeds as possible, the contents of at least 20 berries at once, divided between four or five branches. Many seeds will die or be eaten by birds. By March or April, your surviving seeds should be germinating. Mistletoe is very slow. You will not see any leaf for three years. After the third year, the mistletoe plant will start growing rapidly. Those instructions are to be found in The Keen Countryman's Miscellany by Peter Holt, published by Quiller in Shrewsbury. Vonya Carlton and Mike Lane have more advice on cultivation now in Growing Sense. It's Christmas in the garden. It's great, isn't it? And we've got a lovely day to be outside as well. Yeah, it's beautiful. Cold but sunny. I like that. Not too many jobs in the garden, I hope. Personally, it's, I always like to just, just to get out for a couple of hours yeah. and do a small bit because then you feel better and that mince pie is worked on. Oh, yes. Um, mince pie and a cup of tea afterwards it. I go that's for. It. That's it. Uh, I'm very aware of not wanting to disturb little animals that might be uh, hibernating. Yeah. It's quite nice with the herbaceous bed. You've basically just left it, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. great because yeah, the insects can actually climb inside the seed heads. 
yeah. le leave that until probably late February and then possibly cut that down. Yeah. And it's also quite nice to see that you've added some, some bird feeders. Oh, around, yes, yes, just um, a few. So we can get the wildlife into the garden, which is important to us, isn't it, really? Of course it is, it is yeah. Is. And I guess it's too late now to put any bulbs in, is it? I mean, I, I have put them into my parents' garden uh, probably on Christmas Eve. Oh! <laughs> and yet, you know, the bulbs the bulbs came up. The they did come In April, probably a few. Oh, a little bit late, yeah, but quite can. nice still. Yeah. I think the soil in general is a little bit too wet to work, so I yes. guess if you were putting any bulbs in, you'd need to put them in pots, them really. In pots. Yeah. yeah. It's that time of the year when people always turn up with plants for you. Yes, yeah. Yeah. those pretty cyclamen, are they called? Cyclamens, yes. I, yep, I don't have a very good track record with them. I managed to kill them, and I think it's probably because I take them indoors, because yeah. they're often sold they're as often a house plant, aren't house they? Plant. So a lot of people do put them on windowsills, so, so possibly have them on the windowsill, and then if, if you remember, just move them slightly away from the window mm -hmm. so that they don't get cold at night. Yeah. Uh, and there's also the the, the poinsettia, always oh, arrived. Yeah, there's about a hundred different varieties in total. I didn't believe know that. it or not. This is this is a plant which is probably a commercial delight. Of a family from the United States, a German family, actually cultivated it. It first came um, over the border from Mexico, just after the Spanish invaded. And the Spanish used to use the poinsettia um, for Christmas decorations in their own homes. Uh, a chap called Joel Poinsett brought it back into America. Because the plant only really lasts for three days. <laughs> in England? Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, three days of a potted plant. And, and people say, well, it's quite nice, but it doesn't really do much. And then there was a, a gentleman who was emigrating actually to Fiji who then landed in California, as you do, and <laughs> said, it's quite nice here, I'm going to become a dairy farmer. <laughs> so this dairy farmer then fell in love with poinsettias and started to cultivate it. Fast forward to 1990s and there was a whole TV campaign and the poinsettia went from being this, this small plant which only a few people knew about to being one of the world's most popular Christmas plants well, around is. the world. I'm fascinated with the scented ones. It's right, it's got a pine scent. A pine, oh, it sounds the delicious, it sounds scent. lovely. So if you do want some pine scent, look at your Christmas trees. Mm. There's so much we can do, isn't there? So so many yes. different types of Christmas And trees. some of them are quite soft to the feel these days. They're not yes. like prickly ones yeah. that we used to have when I was little. Yeah, I mean the old traditional ones, something like, like the Norway spruce, they, the needles drop, mm. but they do smell nice. They do, yes, they, they do. do smell nice. I think the trees look, um, to me, they look very nice, decorated in ribbon, and yes. you can just tie them on the branches. Whereas if you've got things dangling from it, it's yeah. easy to knock things off and yeah. uh, yes. you know, get into a mess yeah. and, you know. Yeah. It's more <laughs> kind of that sort of more Scandi feel as well I sometimes, guess, isn't yeah. it? A bit more simple and, yeah. and, and, and things. Yeah. There's been some good successes in the garden yeah. this, this year. Yeah. 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 Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for all these tips for Christmas. <laughs> it's always nice just to catch up and see the garden at a different time of the year. It is. And I think so. now, is it time for that cup of tea and a mince yeah, pie? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay, come on then, Mike. We were hearing Laurie Lee's reminiscences of his childhood Christmases a few moments ago. And many of us will remember our own experience of school nativity plays. Evelyn gives us Joyce Grenfell's Nursery Nativity. 
Mrs Binton. I'm so glad you could get along to see a rehearsal of our nativity play. Can you squeeze in there? I'm afraid our chairs are a wee bitty wee, as they say north of the border. Now then, children, we're going to start our rehearsal. Where are my Mary and Joseph? That's right, Shirlene. Take Dennis by the hand and come and sit nice and quietly on this bench in the middle. Don't drag him. He'll come if you leave him alone. Don't hit each other. Mary and Joseph were friends. Now, who are my wise men? You're a wise man, aren't you, Geoffrey? Oh, aren't you? What are you then? Oh, you're a cattle, are you? And you're going to low. Splendid. Go over to Miss Bolting, will you please? Miss Bolting, you are organising the animals and the angels? He is one of yours. Now, my wise men here, please. Billy, Peter and George. And George... Wise men never do that. Now, my kings, please. Of course, Mrs Binton, we know that, by tradition, the wise men and the kings are one and the same. But we did want everyone in our nursery school nativity play to have a chance. So we've taken a few liberties. I don't think anyone will mind. Now, kings. Sydney, Neville, Cliff, and Nicholas Ananides. Four kings, I'm afraid. We happen to have four lovely crowns, so it seemed a pity not to use them. Sydney, put your crown on straight, please. Not over one eye. What have you got under your jersey? Oh, that's not the place for a hamster, is it? Put him straight back in his little pen, please. Sydney, which one have you got? Paddington or Harold Wilson? Well, who's got Paddington? Neville, put him back at once. Poor Paddington and Harold Wilson. It isn't very Christmassy for them under your jersey. Sydney, I think it serves you right if Harold Wilson bit you. And don't bite him back. Because he's smaller than you are. Are you bleeding? Then don't make such a fuss. Cliff, put your crown on, please. It's too big? Let's see. Ah, oh, yes, it is. Where are you? Oh, there you are. Nice to see you again. Change with Nicholas. Nicholas, you can manage a big crown, can't you? You've got just the ears for it. I think if you pull your ears down a bit, 
that will hold it up. And lean back a bit, that's it. Stay like that, dear, don't move. Wise men and kings, don't muddle yourselves with each other. Now then, shepherds. Jimmy, you are my first shepherd and not a racing car. Yes, Caroline, you're a shepherd. Uh, no, dear, you can't wear your little Bo Peep costume because there aren't any little girl shepherdesses in our play. They're all boy shepherds. And you are a girl being a boy shepherd. Yes, it is rotten, but we just have to settle for it. I think if you are very good... Perhaps you can wear a lovely grey beard. Wouldn't that be fun? George, what do wise men never do? Yes. Jimmy, do you remember what you see up in the sky? Something lovely, isn't it? Uh, no, not a baby. Try again. It's a lovely silver star, and you are going to put your hand up and point to it. And what are you going to say when you do that? No, Sydney, he isn't going to say, please may I go to the bathroom. Ch children, that isn't funny. It's a perfectly natural function and we might as well get used to it. Come on, Jimmy. You are going to say, behold, aren't you? Yes, you are, dear. You said it yesterday. You'd rather say it tomorrow? <sighs> Perhaps you're right. We have broken the back of the play so you may as well get ready to go home. Hand in your crowns gently, please. No, Sydney, you can't wear your crown home on the bus. I think, I hope it will be all right on the night. But you know, Mrs Binton, I think perhaps next year we might make do with a Christmas carol. Each one of Joyce Grenfell's nursery school monologues has become a classic. Although much more prolific and equally well known in his day, the writer George Sims produced only one work that might truly be said to have achieved that status, Jane. George Robert Sims was born in 1847 and was what we might call today a satirical newspaper columnist but he also wrote many plays, both serious and musical, along with poems and novels. This is his best-remembered piece. It is Christmas Day in the workhouse, and the cold bare walls are bright with garlands of green and holly, and the place is a pleasant sight. For with clean-washed hands and faces in a long and hungry line, the paupers sit at the table. To this 
is the hour they dine. And the guardians and their ladies, although the wind is east, have come in furs and wrappers to watch their charges feast, to smile and be condescending, put pudding on pauper plates, to be hosts at the workhouse banquet they've paid for with the rates. The piece, as you may have gathered already, is a searing indictment of the poverty relief system that resulted from the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834, which takes as its starting point the principle that, unless checked, the population will increase faster than the country's resources to support it, and that people prefer to do what is pleasant and tend to claim relief rather than work. Just the sort of attitude that would get Sims up onto his hobby horse. Oh, the paupers are meek and lonely with their thanky-kindy mums, so long as they fill their stomachs. What matter it whence it comes? But one of the old men mutters and pushes his plate aside. Great God, he cries, but it chokes me, for this is the day she died. The guardians gaze in horror. The master's face went white. Did a pauper refuse the pudding? Could their ears believe a right? He looked at the guardian's ladies, then eyeing their lords, he said, I eat not the food of villains whose hands are foul and red. I care not a curse for the guardians, and I won't be dragged away. Just let me have the fit out. It's only on Christmas Day that the black past comes to goad me and prey on my burning brain. I'll tell you the rest in a whisper. I swear... I won't shout again. Do you think I will take your bounty and let you smile and think you're doing a noble action with the parish's meat and drink? Where is my wife, you traitors? The poor old wife you slew. Yes, by the God above me, my Nance was killed by you. Last winter my wife lay dying starved in a filthy den. I had never been to the parish. I came to the parish then. I swallowed my pride in coming. For ere the ruin came, I held up my head as a trader, and I bore a spotless name. I came to the parish, craving bread for a starving wife, bread for the woman who'd loved me through fifty years of life. And what do you think they told me? Mocking my awful grief, that the house was open to us, that they wouldn't give out relief. Christmas Day in the Workhouse was an instant success for Sims when it was published in a popular Sunday sports and entertainment paper, from within whose pages he had become a regular voice for reform, melodramatically spotlighting the plight of suffering Londoners. But he wasn't one to allow the truth to spoil a good story, and in fact, at the time he wrote this poem, despite what it describes, the poor law regulations did actually permit old couples to cohabit and allow for short-term relief to be given out. But the poem's relentless sentiment was very appealing to the Victorian magazine-buying public. I slunk to the filthy alley, it was a cold, raw Christmas Eve. 
and the baker's shops were open, tempting a man to thieve. But I clenched my fists together, holding my head awry. So I came to her empty-handed and mournfully told her why. Then I told her the house was open. She'd heard of the ways of that, for her bloodless cheeks went crimson, and up in her rags she sat, crying, Bide the Christmas here, John. We've never had one apart. I think I can bear the hunger. The other would break my heart. Then the room was bathed in glory, and I saw in my darling's eyes the faraway look of wonder that comes when the spirit flies. And she rose to her feet and trembled and fell on the rags and moaned, and give me a crust, I'm famished, for the love of God, she groaned. I rushed from the room like a madman and flew to the workhouse gate, crying, food for a dying woman. And the answer came, too late. They drove me away with curses. Then I fought with a dog in the street and tore from the mongrel's clutches a crust he was trying to eat. Back through the filthy byways, back through the trampled slush, up to the crazy garret wrapped in an awful hush. My heart sank down at the threshold as I paused with a sudden thrill. For there, in the silvery moonlight, my Nance lay cold and still. Up to the blackened ceiling, the sunken eyes were cast. I knew on those lips, all bloodless, my name had been the last. She called to her absent husband. Oh God, had I but known, had called in vain and in anguish, had died in that den, alone. Yes, there, in a land of plenty, lay a loving woman dead cruelly starved and murdered for a loaf of the parish bread. At yonder gate last Christmas, I craved for a human life. You who would feed us paupers, what of my murdered wife? There, get ye gone to your dinners. Don't mind me in the least. Think of the happy paupers eating your Christmas feast. And when you recount their blessings in your smug parochial way, say what you did for me, too, only last Christmas Day. George Sims' verses were spoken for us there by Michael Dyer. Now this story could be true or it could be false, Father Christmas used to be green. The origins of Father Christmas in England date back to ancient pre-Christian midwinter festivals where an unnamed pagan figure robed in green hooded cloak and wearing a wreath of holly, ivy and mistletoe would come to lift people's spirits during the bleakest time of year. Although not yet associated with Christmas, this wintry figure would shape the evolving image of Father Christmas for centuries to come. Over time, his long green robes became a furred gown and cap, moving closely towards the outfit we recognise. But they retain their original colour. And there you are, 
Father Christmas used to be dressed in green. True or false, you decide. Stephen has some more brain teasers for you in his Christmas quiz. The first of nine questions. Which Cambridge college is particularly associated with the service of nine lessons and carols? Is it A. Selwyn, B. Balliol, or C. King's? The answer is King's College. The first service was held at Christmas in 1918 and has been broadcast on the radio since 1928 and on the television since 1954. But it didn't originate there. The first service to be called Nine Lessons and Carols was held in Truro Cathedral at Christmas in 1880. This was quite a departure, as for much of the Victorian era, carols were regarded as secular songs and not used in church. And incidentally, Balliol College is Oxford, not Cambridge. Question two. Which country sends a Christmas tree each year to be erected in Trafalgar Square? A. China B. Norway or C. Greenland The answer is B. Norway The tree has been an annual gift from Norway to the people of Britain as a token of gratitude for British support to their country during the Second World War. The tradition began in 1942, when the first tree was cut down by Norwegian resistance fighters and then transported to England, where the Norwegian king, Harkon VII, was in exile. It was his idea to erect it in Trafalgar Square. Greenland, option C, is surprisingly one of the few countries on the planet which has no trees at all. Question 3. Who introduced the tree for Christmas to England? Was it A, Oliver Cromwell, B, Prince Albert, or C, Queen Victoria? The answer is Prince Albert. At least that's the accepted view. But in fact, George III's wife Charlotte is recorded as having a decorated tree for Christmas in 1800. Oliver Cromwell was not a great fan of Christmas. Question 4. Which monarch delivered the first Christmas message? Was it A. King George IV, B. King George V, or C. Queen Elizabeth II? The answer is King George V, and it was written for him by Rudyard Kipling. Question 5. Who invented the Christmas cracker? Was it A. Hiram Hackenbacker in California, B. Tom Smith in London, or C. Noi San Pop in what was then Peking in China? The answer is Tom Smith in 1847. Smith owned a sweet shop in London and got the idea for the Christmas cracker after spotting French bonbons wrapped in paper with a twist at each end. He sold similar sweets with a love motto inside. He then included a little trinket and a bang. His bangs of expectation included gifts such as jewellery and miniature dolls. By 1900, he was selling 
13 million a year. Question 6. What is the traditional Christmas meal in Japan? Is it A. Unagi fish, B. Kentucky fried chicken, or C. Roast turkey? The answer is Kentucky fried chicken. A strange tradition indeed. Apparently, it's all down to Takeshi Okawara, the manager of the first KFC in the country. Shortly after it opened in 1970, Okawara woke up one night and jotted down an idea that came to him in a dream, a party barrel to be sold at Christmas. As there was no traditional celebration of Christmas in Japan, KFC filled the void. And now, 3.5 million families sit down to KFC on Christmas Day. And you need to place your order two months in advance. Question 7. On what day should the Christmas pudding be made? A. January the 5th, and keep it for a year. B. The 5th Sunday before Christmas. Or C. The King's birthday, around the second Saturday in June. The answer is on the fifth Sunday before Christmas. The Victorians began this tradition, encouraged no doubt by the collect, the prayer for the day, which begins, Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people. Each member of the family was supposed to stir the mixture from east to west, recalling the journey of the Magi. Question 8. When was the first Christmas card sent? Was it A, 73 AD, B, 1843, or C, 1903? The answer is B, 1843. Sir Henry Cole, one of the founders of the Postal Service and the first curator of the Victoria and Albert Museum, designed a card showing his family enjoying Christmas 1843 and had 1,000 printed to be sold at one shilling each. This was expensive at the time, and the venture was a commercial failure. One was sold in 2014 for £8,500. It wasn't until the 1860s when improved printing techniques enabled coloured cards to be produced cheaply that Christmas cards really took off. And in 2022, we sent one billion of them. Lastly, question 9. Why do we celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December? Was it because A, the Roman Christian historian Sextus Julius Africanus dated Jesus' conception to March the 25th, the same date upon which he held that the world was created, which, after nine months in his mother's womb, would result in a December the 25th birth? Or B, William the Conqueror declared that the day of his accession to the English throne, 25th of December 1066, be marked henceforth with feasting and joyful conduct. Or C, because in the 3rd century, the Roman Empire celebrated the rebirth of the unconquered sun on December the 25th, marking the return of longer days after the winter solstice. The answer is definitely not B. William the Conqueror became known more for his brutality than Christmas good cheer. 
However, A and C are both correct. Now for the answers to true or false. The first one was sparkly Suffolk beaches. It was actually false. The Norwegian government, as governments do, introduced a tax break. This is actually true, so that employees get more money at Christmas time. The 1931 painting, Nativity with a Pineapple, uh, that is false. And when Santa got stuck in the chimney, this is false. And lastly, it's true, the man that started the story of Father Christmas did dress in green. Kate? Father Christmas is a traditional English name for the personification of Christmas. The recognisably modern figure of the English Father Christmas developed in the late Victorian period, but Christmas had been personified for centuries before then. English personifications of Christmas were first recorded in the 15th century, with Father Christmas himself first appearing in the mid-17th century in the aftermath of the English Civil War. Following the Restoration in 1660, Father Christmas's profile declined. His character was maintained during the late 18th and into the 19th century by the Christmas folk plays until Victorian times, Father Christmas was concerned with adult feasting and merrymaking. He had no particular connection with children, nor with the giving of presents, nocturnal visits, stockings, chimneys or reindeer. But as late Victorian Christmases developed into child-centric family festivals, Father Christmas became a bringer of gifts. The popular American myth of Santa Claus arrived in England in the 1850s and Father Christmas started to take on Santa's attributes. Most residual distinctions between Father Christmas and Santa Claus largely faded away in the early years of the 20th century, and modern dictionaries considered the terms Father Christmas and Santa Claus to be synonymous. Time for part two of our audio playhouse. John Smith, fledgling actor, you remember, is about to set foot on stage in his first ever professional role. He's been coached in his performance by the mysterious AJ. But will he remember his lines? And who is AJ, anyhow? Ebenezer, what's this I hear about you and that flatly girl from Islington Barracks? Jacob Marley. Never you mind about my affairs. I remember that first scene vividly. I needn't have worried about remembering my lines. Thanks to AJ, they flowed into my head as if I'd been playing the part all my life. Is that something your mother His suggestions for little actions and reactions all felt completely natural and seemed to be much appreciated by my fellow actors and stage. Christmas and may God bless us, everyone. As we came off after several curtain calls, Val, the director, hugged me theatrically. John, well done. Absolute tour de force. Don't change a thing. I don't know how you learned it so fast. We were all ready for you to dry, but there was no question of that, was there? 
absolutely fluent. And you instinctively put in all the little bits of business that Stephen had such trouble with. We're so impressed and so grateful. That was the first time anyone had mentioned the name of my predecessor, who, I learnt later, had just run off with the ASM. Thanks, Val. That means a lot. But AJ was a great help to me. I, I couldn't have done it without him. Oh, AJ. Who's that? Well, he's said to call him that. You know him. A chap in his 60s with a beard. Is he the writer, perhaps? It was Alex somebody, wasn't it, who wrote the play? Mm. Alex Journeyman. Yes, that was it. AJ. No, I don't think so. Alex Journeyman's a lady. Alexandra. Oh. And I don't think she has a beard. Well, I wonder who it was then. He seemed to know the play extremely well. I thought he was one of the cast at first. Nigel, have you got a guy called AJ on your crew? Hmm? Nigel's our lighting man. No, sorry, not one of mine. Val, can I have a word? Yes, of course, Dennis. Excuse me, John. Casting me the odd glance, the stage doorkeeper spoke quickly and quietly to Val, whose face became suddenly serious. She looked up at me. I, I, I knew what was coming. To keep me from brooding over the not entirely unexpected death of my father, I decided to try and find the elusive AJ. Nobody at the theatre knew him or anything about him. No one recognised his description either. In the weeks that followed, I spent a lot of time looking for him, on the pier, in the town. I even went round to the police station and asked there, but they didn't know AJ. They suggested I ask at the hostel for the homeless in Fish Walk. East Haven's Haven for the Homeless was a sorry collection of dilapidated porter cabins down by the quay. By contrast, the home's warden, Andy, was young and enthusiastic. AJ? Well, that's what he said his name was, yes. My height, more or less, beard, early 60s, scar on his cheek, tattoo on his left wrist. Like most of our clients, then. What's the tattoo? Well, it looks like a hand sheltering something. OK. This sort of thing. Uh, this is our brochure. Tells you who we are and what we do. You can have one if you like. It was hardly what I'd call a brochure, just a rather tatty A5 photocopy with a single sentence about the hostel, a phone number and a drawing of an upturned cupped hand. Yes, that's, that's exactly it. So it's your logo. Andy, are you sure he hasn't been here? I mean, why would he have your logo tattooed on his wrist? And there were some initials under it. CSI, I think they were. Whose initials are they? Don't ask me, mate. I'm sorry I can't help you. I'll look out for him, though. Well, if you do see him, could you let me know? John Smith. I'm in the show at the theatre down on the pier for the next few weeks. I, I kind of owe him a favour. But by the time the show had reached the end of its run, I still had no news of AJ. Sidney Shlomo was trying to get hold of me, though. Well done, John boy. I hear you went down a storm on the pier. Oh, they seem very pleased, Mr Shlomo, yes, but I don't know Got if... Got another lined up for you, up north. 
Motherwell. A serious comedy, they called it. Well, bigger part than East Haven, right up your alley, I'd say. Actually, Sydney, I rather like it here. Pay not brilliant, equity minimum, but you like it where? Here, Dimfield. They're not doing it in Dimfield. Dimfield doesn't even have a theatre. Yes, I know that. You see, Sydney, while I was down in East Heaven, I met someone who made me question what it is what I want to do with my life. Now, now, Johnny, John, John boy, don't let some woman come between... Oh, it's not a woman, Sydney. It's a man. And before you jump to any more conclusions, it's not like that. More like a father figure. Father figure? Made me realise that I can maybe do something useful. Now, what's more useful than giving pleasure to how about giving homes to millions, Mr. Shlomo? With the money I'd inherited from my father, I had made a substantial donation to Andy's Hostel back in East Haven, and it occurred to me that with proper backing, my already quite substantial fortune could be multiplied to help many institutions that cared for the elderly, the homeless and the distressed. I didn't go back to the stage. Instead, I dedicated myself to what AJ had helped me realize had always been my true passion and started up an organization providing financial support to any caring institution that needed it. <laughs> I remember on the company's first anniversary half a century ago now, my staff had held a small celebration at our very first sponsor, the Dimfield Brewery. Yes, it was as boozy as it sounds, and there are parts of that evening that I don't remember, including, apparently, our visit to a local tattoo parlour. I woke the next morning with a large hangover and a small design inked to the inside of my left wrist. It mimicked the logo of Andy's Hostel, a cupped hand symbolising protection, with the initials of my freshly named enterprise beneath. Care Support International. C.S.I. I didn't return to East Haven until the day of our 50th anniversary, but it seemed a fitting place to have our 50-year bash. The dingy old Harbour View Hotel had blossomed over the years into the East Haven Conference and Exhibition Centre, no longer a seedy backstreet guesthouse, but a glitzy marble-clad focal point for the town with expansive views over the harbour and the wash beyond. ...and help provide shelter for more than 2,000 million abandoned people. So in conclusion, it only remains for me to thank all our sponsors and all our staff in 37 countries around the world for the amazing support they give to all the homeless and dispossessed people with whom we share this planet. We couldn't do it without you. God bless you, everyone. Sir John? Sir John? Oh, hello. How do you... Now, we, we've met. You're... Um... Dennis Holder, Sir John. I was the stage doorkeeper at the theatre years ago when... Dennis, of course. My goodness, how are you? You're looking well. Oh, thank you, sir. The years have been very kind. Well, I'm glad. You're, 
You're not still at the theatre. Oh, no, sir. No, I retired ten years ago when I turned 70. Right. Do you miss it? Well, yes, from time to time, sir. It, uh, it was about that that I wanted a word. Uh-huh. You see, sir, when I was clearing my things from the old place, I come across these. I thought you might be interested. I see. What's this? <laughs> a poster for that play. Ah, but it's from the following year. So they did it again? Every year, sir, since then. Well, not the same cast all those years, though, eh? One or two, sir. Good Lord. And what's this? That's the East Haven Gazette, sir. 2012. Hmm. Oh, the obituaries. I circled the one, sir. Smith? John? Ha, well, there are a lot of us about. There's a small article on the page opposite, sir. Uh-huh. Oh, yes, here we are. John Smith, better known as Autolycus Johnboy. What? Who in East Haven's regular end of the pier play, Christmas Yet to Come, took the part of Jacob Marley, a part he has played for the last 40 years? Autolycus Johnboy. Hey, Jay. Mr. John Boy drowned, sir, falling from the pier on his 62nd birthday. Uh, not to speak ill of the dead, sir, but Mr. John Boy did enjoy a drink, if you understand me. Gin? Gin was his favourite tipple, sir. The thing is, I do remember, all those years ago, you were very interested in the whereabouts of somebody with his initials. Yes. AJ. Hmm. Nobody had heard of him. No, sir. Not surprisingly, as the story goes, that Mr. John Boy was actually in prison during the short time that you were with us, sir, and for several months after that. In Peru, he was, I believe. Some misunderstanding over drug trafficking, they tell me. He was quite badly treated, they say. Oh. It wasn't until our second year of yet to come that Mr. John Boy came to East Haven and joined the cast. Everybody said how like you he was, sir. Not to look at him. Of course, he had quite a bad scar on his face, not to mention a long beard. But similar to yourself in how he played the role, if you understand me. Same mannerisms, they used to say. But if he was in prison in Peru, how could I have met him on the pier at East Haven? I really couldn't say, sir. But while he was locked up in South America, his father died and left him enough money to buy his way out of prison and return to Europe. And that's when he became an actor? He had trained, I believe, sir, in London. Thameshurst, I think he said. Thameshurst? But, but that's where I trained. Perhaps that's where you knew him from. Oh, no, 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 no. I, no, I'd never met him before I started playing Jacob Marley. Anyway, how old was he when he took over the part from me? When he came here, he was in his mid-twenties, I'd say, sir. No, but... no, this is all a huge mistake, Dennis. When I met AJ back then, he was already in his sixties. It says here he died on his birthday, the 15th of December. Well, that's my birthday too, but I was young and inexperienced then, and he seemed to be an old hand at it, using what could well have been my stage name if I'd kept at it as my career. Are you all right, mate? What? I said, are you okay? Are you ill? He died on his 62nd birthday. You know, Dennis, 
I think I'm beginning to understand how all this might be, and how it was that AJ had a tattoo on his wrist showing the initials of my company, which didn't even exist at that time. On the day he fell to his death in the sea below East Haven Pier, did the ghost of alcoholic and disillusioned actor Autolycus John Boy, in a distorted echo of Dickens' Christmas story, somehow return to divert his younger self onto an alternative path in life? When I got back home after the conference, I dug out my old stage makeup box and fashioned myself a straggly beard and painted a scar on my right cheek as a sort of experiment. <laughs> I was always rather good at makeup. I looked in the mirror, and sure enough, staring back at me was the face of AJ just as I had known him, my own face. In AJ by John Stanbury, John Smith and AJ were both played by Martin Bourne. All the other parts were played by Nigel Buckley and members of the Talking Newspaper. AJ was recorded in our studio here at Colin Chance House and was produced and directed by John Plush. And that just about wraps it up for this Christmas special edition of Look Here. All that remains is to thank all of our Talking News volunteers without whom Look Here would not be possible. Particular, Carol Hartle and her team of administrators, including David and Sylvia Day, who copy the magazines. And thanks to you too for listening. We hope you've enjoyed our offerings over the past year and we look forward to more in 2024. But for now, from all of us, it's goodbye and a very Merry, Merry Christmas! Christmas.